Star Trek, The Nerdy Frontier. These are the discussions of the Good Time Society. Their continuing mission to explore each episode, to seek out new topics and ridiculous observations, to boldly watch what they've already watched before. And we're back with The Last Outpost. Hey, Xander. Hey, Becca. How you doing? Hey, hanging in there. We're doing all right. And this is uh, the rough part of Next Generation, so we're just getting through it. <laughs> I'm feeling like a last outpost in myself, so it really felt right. And it was great to meet the Ferengi, which were set up to be the new rivals to the crew of the Next Generation. And, you know, they really delivered. You know, Xander, Becca and I were talking earlier about how the campiness of this season makes us kind of want to fast forward. But I said, we need to kind of enjoy this for what it is instead of like trying to push through it to the really solid episodes because I want to live in the mistakes and the campiness of these episodes a little bit. It's weird that you say campiness because I feel like what these early episodes is lacking is the campiness or like the lightheartedness that we'll get later on. Right now they're stuck in this, we have to be militaristic and we have to be serious all the time. And um, the Ferengi in this episode are portrayed as like, frightening they're Mm -hmm. scary and they're big on the screen and it's supposed to be intimidating (laughs) speak for yourself and they are never portrayed that way ever again uh because they like amp up the campiness of that to 20 but this is the one time that they're kind of taken as a serious threat the thing is like the campiness also comes in with like the music as well which is very dramatic in this first season there's a lot of like horns and orchestral work to really underlay all the tension of the moments i feel like the actors aren't doing too much campiness but there is a lot of writing in here that is very dramatic. I think what is making us feel like this one version of the word campy is the self-seriousness. They're definitely taking themselves too seriously in these moments where they're facing an enemy like the Ferengi that are these like subservient, subsequent little... (laughs) I wouldn't say they're subservient. They're very conniving. They're like a puppy dog that's an ankle biter, you know? (laughs) Right. That's exactly it. Like a chihuahua. (laughs) I mean, not to make a short joke there, but really when we get to the climax in act five of the episode, it's just like, come on, this is ridiculous. (laughs) And the actors are having too much fun. Yeah. It is pretty enjoyable to watch them enjoying how weird they're being. It's interesting too because I wanted to bring up before we get into it too much that this introduction to Ferengi uh, includes Armin Shimmerman who becomes like the Ferengi actor later on. Quark! He's not the captain that's on the screen but rather like the leader of the away team of the Ferengi that's down there and he takes like sort of ownership of what these uh, aliens are portrayed like and sort of changes this sort of animalistic nature that they really were going with in this iteration. So the uh, the Ferengi on the screen, that you mean the captain of the other ship, which mm-hmm. is Diamond somebody? Diamond is their title, right? Diamond is the title for forever and then it's his name. Diamond Tar is played by Mike Gomez. Uh, Armin Shimmerin? Shimmerman? Is that how you pronounce it? Shimmerman. The shimmeriest of men. He plays Latek, which is, I think, he think he's the commander of the away team, right? And he later goes on to play a character named Quark in Deep Space Nine, which is a spinoff of 
uh, Next Generation. Yet another French name for a, a non-French accented character. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's uh, oh gosh, they, this is another one where Picard brings up the French thing again. He's trying to establish that he oh, is yeah. French with no French accent. I think this is really uh, playing to the audience again because you have to remember Jean-Luc Picard was not a household name. This was sort of them taking a risk from James T. Kirk, like all-American boy from Iowa, to this strange English Frenchman. But why isn't the French guy having... Why doesn't he sound like Pepe Le Pew? Which he almost did. Uh, <laughs> and so they, they try to stuff as much exposition in, oh, he's very proud of his heritage. He he says merde and things like that. Oh, yeah. He slipped merde in on a freaking syndicated show. That was crazy. I totally miss that. That means shit, doesn't it? That means shit. Uh, yeah, he slips it in on on uh, primetime television. It's pretty great. Get by censors by just doing a different language, especially in the 90s. Scheisse. They spent like a full page of dialogue on just flag colors, which was kind of crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the red, white, and blue. I'm going to list them, but Data, when you do, it's annoying. <laughs> but no, let me tell you one more thing about the French flag. So true. So the Enterprise is in pursuit of a Ferengi vessel. The Ferengi stole a... T9 energy converter, I believe it was, from one of the unmanned outposts. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because they're Yankee traders. <laughs> Whatever that exactly means. Is it traitor or trader? It's traders. Ooh. Traders, but one of the jokes is that the Ferengi hear the word traitor. Ah. It's a very Pirates of Penzance joke. I mean, one is truth and one is a hardcore diss. So that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> They're just merchants. They're just trying to get their due, trying to make a little money. I think there's nothing wrong with that Ferengi. Well, the Ferengi uh, managed to get only so far before they slow down, and the Enterprise thinks they're slowing down intentionally, but it turns out that both of their ships are kind of caught in some type of force field, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, no one really knows what's going on. And before the Enterprise even realizes it, they think they're actually under attack from the Ferengi, which I thought was an interesting twist this early on, is like when we contact them and they start to surrender as well, that was a nice like, oh, this isn't going to be mission as usual. It's like two flies caught in a spider web, and the flies think it's each other that caught them there? Yeah, that's a good summary. <laughs> ah, the old fable. Yeah. That old proverb. <laughs> this is, again, classic Trek, and I think this harkens back to what you were talking about with like the music cues and things like that, which also feels very original series. Um, these feel like sort of rehash or um, sort of recycled scripts that are coming in, because uh, you have DC Fontana and a lot of people that are coming in from older Trek that are sort of shoehorning. They think they know how to do it, and so they're bringing in these older techniques, and um, it doesn't quite work anymore. It ain't mm -hmm, the 60s mm -hmm. anymore, DC. <laughs> you can tell, I think, I forget what it is exactly, but like halfway through they like switched the writers on this um, or, or no, it was that the lawyer got involved with one of the um, rewrites on the way to deliver the copy. He just rewrote it himself and people were like why are you doing that? You're the lawyer. And he's like, oh, I'm just doing this because they asked me to change it, but nobody had seen it yet. And so he was just making these weird changes and they just left it in. Wait, what? Yeah, that's the rumor that was going around. Oh my god, that's how they got their pool noodle guns. The lawyer was like, uh-uh, they're gonna swing their dildos at each other. <laughs> and then he quit the next day. <laughs> I get it. 
So we actually get to finally see the Ferengi for the first time. They're mentioned in previous episodes as like the new antagonist because originally Roddenberry didn't want more Romulan and Klingon wars. They didn't want to revisit that same theme. Mm -hmm. So we have these Ferengi as the mysterious new antagonists who, according to Picard, they haven't even made visual contact with before, right? They haven't specifically. Oh, got it. And there isn't like a database of information available to them in the Federation systems because they don't have the information from the Ferengi. And you can tell the Ferengi aren't used to visual contact because, boy, they are punched in real tight. (laughs) (laughs) And with teeth like that, you really don't need to be. Uh, You should really pull out a little bit. I wish Picard had had a strong first reaction of, oh, whoa, whoa, I just, um, nothing, something I ate, not your teeth and ears. Unmagnify, Mr. Worf, unmagnify. (laughs) Unmagnify. It's interesting, too, because what they were going for, I think, was that the Ferengi were sort of making up for their lack of stature and sort of intimidation, especially if they're dealing with Klingons or Vulcans or Romulans who are very intimidating people or races rather. And so you can see that they have these sort of security protocols of like, okay, start with audio only with your voice modulated to make you sound tough and intimidating, then switch to something that's supposed to be scary. And and then finally, if you have to meet in person, you find out that these little uh, short people. (laughs) So I think that was what they were trying to get across is that they realize what they look like to other races and they try to be intimidating when they make contact. I get it. That's why I stand on an Apple box sometimes for interviews. It makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Uh, One more. What if Picard was like, oh, disengage. (laughs) That's how he called off his wedding. (laughs) Hey, welcome to Devoldly Watch where you're going to get all the cheesy Star Trek (laughs) jokes you could ever ask from a dad. Yeah. Beyond their stature and their like crazy movement, they also have a very interesting look. Those guys are memorable and don't look human at all. I can't remember the exact quote about it, but when they were designing the Ferengi, I think they were supposed to be also pointy-eared like a lot of the antagonists or other alien species within Star Trek. And so when they did a makeup test, they're like, let's try rounding their ears and making them much more prominent. And it gives them, I think, the most interesting look of any of the like facial prosthetic aliens besides Klingons. Oh, you forgot to mention the butt forehead, <laughs> uh, which is important. It really makes them more sensitive to one another. They mate by rubbing their forehead bumps against one another. Oh. And uh, it's really a defining characteristic of Ferengi culture. I didn't realize that you were brushing up on your Ferengi mating rituals. <laughs> no. I made all this up. This is bullshit. <laughs> You're not far off, though, because rubbing the lobes of the ear does become like a sexualized thing for Ferengi. Does it? Oh, snap. I was so close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do they do with their forehead butts, then? <laughs> it's just where they poop. <laughs> it's just for decoration, mm. you know. Uh, <laughs> and I think that when you're approaching it from a makeup design perspective, you have to create an alien look that is replicable on a daily basis that doesn't cost too much from prosthetics and you can throw in extras in and out of something. So like a Klingon forehead and all the armor and stuff like that, that could take forever. The same thing with the Ferengi, they sort of stepped it up and you can tell they get a a higher budget for what the Ferengi wear. But it it was a great call emphasizing the ears as opposed to like choosing the nose or the forehead or the mouth or something uh, because we hadn't seen that done really before. In what part of Starfleet Academy did they tell the cadets that it's okay to mutter under your breath when 
contacting a new species <laughs> because Data and Jordy are gossiping like the f- two students at the front of the classroom, <laughs> but they should be in the back yeah. of the classroom when they're talking like they're talking. And program it into their androids. Yeah, that scene feels so 90s TV. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's so much like, oh, see, we're just like your classroom relatable sitcom. Yeah. We're just in space with a robot and a guy with a headband on his face. <laughs> well, and Xander, you put me onto this over text that we can hear you because of our big ears. Wait, how'd they hear that? (laughs) Insulting. Just because they're bigger lobes doesn't mean they hear any better. We saw no other proof of that. No, no, it is a thing. Uh, Ferengi do hear better than others because of their larger ears. Same with Vulcans and Romulans. They're said to have better hearing than humans. Dang, I'm jealous. I just blew mine out trying to set up this recording. The Enterprise is trapped. They are actually losing power at this point, and they can't figure out what to do. So they come up with a plan to pretty much just, like, floor it. Is that what the is that what the summary of that is? Is just, we're going to go as fast as we can really quickly. Brilliant. Jordy comes up with the plan, and he says, okay, okay, okay. They're, like, pulling on us. It's like a tug of war. So here's how you win it, tug of war. You act like <laughs> you're pulling as hard as you can, and then you let go. But the opposite. You get it. It's supposed to be analogous to the Chinese finger trap thing that they were doing, where if you keep pulling and pulling, it won't let you go. But if you release a little bit and then pull out, it should work. And you don't make a baby. It works. (laughs) (laughs) So that you understand, Becca, just because it's not really clear in this episode, Data is very, very strong and very, very smart. Um, Just in case you forgot, because the writers did. (laughs) So I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, because he would have ripped apart that bamboo like instantly. (laughs) He was using his gentle fingers. He whips out his strength at the end when he holds a Ferengi with one hand. Which is also why it makes no sense. (laughs) True, true. But he knows when to be in gentle mode based on the material he's working with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like uh, Lieutenant (laughs) Yacht. I would say LeVar Burton had one of the hardest lines to deal with, which is, oh, I see where you're going. We shift down and kick hard into warp nine. Yeah, come back fighting. Woo-wee. <laughs> woo-wee. That's what gets me. Takes a strong actor to really deliver the woo-wee. Yeah. I am so proud of the actors delivering some of these early lines. Seriously, as like an exercise, the next time you watch an episode, either isolate some of Troy's lines or isolate some of Riker's lines and see if you can do them as convincingly as these actors do because they have to say some pretty banana stuff. Yeah, yeah. And mostly Troy has to admit that she knows nothing <laughs> all of the time. Uh, I, I'm feeling... No emotions. I can't sense any emotions right now, which was something that happened in this episode. Start the count. (laughs) The trick doesn't work, and they decide, well, we need to figure this out. And so instead of planning on the bridge, we're going to go plan in the observation room. So everybody leaves the bridge, which felt really weird. Except for like two people left on the bridge, including (laughs) Jordy. They were like, well, I can't come in an officer. Fine. Yeah, bring the android. Sure. Where, uh, by the way, Matthew and Pola are somehow in the observation lounge and left their toys in there. And that was really concerning. It's because Jean-Luc Picard at this point only has two character points. He loves being fucking French and he <laughs> sorry, and he doesn't like kids. That's it. He is your fucking friend. <laughs> that's that's all that they have to go off because otherwise he's like this picture perfect captain in a picture perfect utopia. So they've got to play up the two points that they have. In their eyes, there was this moment at the top when we're first learning about the Ferengi where he's like real bruised in the ego. Picard is when uh, Data says they are really impressive in a lot of their technology and then he's like well I don't know about that (laughs) Data's like oh uh, well equal to our own right yeah that's right that's right French 
America. Or uh, whatever. Federation. (laughs) (laughs) Uncle who? (laughs) Also, one thing I wanted to say about the Ferengi ship is that it's definitely not aerodynamic at all all they're like wait they're turning around to meet us wait the front of the ship is smaller than the back of the ship that's not how space works wait wait hold on space doesn't need aerodynamics does it explain that to me disagree strongly disagree (laughs) you're slowing down your warps there's no air i mean look at the borg cube like that's not aerodynamic no but technically it's not causing drag because there's nothing catching after the first front you know there's nothing to catch there's no air in space it's a vacuum god damn you and your stupid <laughs> science i know and why does the Ferengi ship even need a front make it a bubble i'm sorry for relying on science for all my facts <laughs> but now you're thinking in space becca that's exactly right <laughs> why does this ship need a front it doesn't it could be just a big old circle speaking of like ship models and stuff the hologram that data pulls up to show the takan empire was really great special effects and then we were talking earlier it's like oh we realized we've been watching a remastered version of Star Trek The Next Generation. It has to be because it looked too good. It is. Yeah, I looked it up and Netflix remastered. I've been watching it on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have, Mm -hmm. but it is the remastered version which has touched up a lot of the visuals and it looks really quite solid. That hologram was like, I think our current level of technology in terms of visual effects. It looked amazing. I think we're cheating. I think we need to go back and find a place where we can stream the non-remastered version to get these OG effects that I I think probably pretty special especially in the first season yeah well honestly this is making it exciting for me because i like to see what they've updated and what they've changed because some of the other things too is that like the screen communication that stuff has been sort of updated as well uh, all the green screen stuff so it, it looks really really good if only they could just edit out the racist stuff <laughs> you can't remaster racism <laughs> Yeah, actually, what they had remastered, it was actually like a puppet show of the planet and the empire. It was like everything was on strings and made out of fabric. So this is a major upgrade. It was way worse. So we learned the Ferengi are in the same situation as the Enterprise. They are also stuck. Wait. I'm so upset because in this moment, they realize uh, maybe you should pay attention to the planet because Troy said that 10 minutes ago. Deanna Troy walks in. She's like, Captain, I think you should pay attention to the planet. I think there's something interesting. We haven't been paying any attention to the planet. They're like, shut up, woman. That's what I heard. I don't don't know if he said that, but... (laughs) This is not going to be the last time that that happens, so buckle up. (laughs) Ooh, deja vu. Someone said about the Ferengi, I don't know if Picard said it or someone else, but they said the image of your alien face shocks us or something like that? Your alien image? Alien visage or whatever it was. It occurred to me, what the heck do the Ferengi think we look like? Because we have small features, right? (laughs) We do. Like a lot of the aliens we see in science fiction have like bigger things, bigger eyes, bigger statues bigger muscles, bigger heads, bigger whatever. But we rarely see aliens that have smaller features, which when you think about it, it's kind of creepy. So maybe humans, we are the creepers. No, think of the classic Area 51 UFO alien that has no nose, just two little holes and like a long green face. But a huge head and big eyes, right? Yeah. <laughs> With a little skinny body. And the skinny body is the little creepy part of it. <laughs> It's true. And they get pretty consistent with the Ferengi thinking that humans are disgusting looking, especially (laughs) human females. Ouch. They don't ship it. The Ferengi and the Federation decide, well, we both better go down to the planet and investigate. And we're going to try and do this together, it sounds like. That whole discussion didn't really go very well. Like, Picard kept offering. Wait, it was hilarious. Because everything has to be a trade. It has to be a, a monetary interaction. So Picard 
comes up with his brilliant plan. I can't wait till they start actually like surprising us instead of like, wow, you decided to phrase it as a trade. We'll trade our friendship and mutual trust for one another in exchange for both benefiting <laughs> from not hurting one another. How about that? Well, Picard, well done. They're aliens. They're not toddlers. It's like they had to... Apparently, they are toddlers. It's yeah. that mentality of pigeonholing entire races and beliefs into one thing. So you can say, like, the Ferengi are greedy and they only deal with business. You can say the Vulcans are logical and cold and they only deal with logic, whatever. They want to define the aliens by a single trait. And so by really reinforcing that, uh, they're sort of defining these new aliens. And yeah, it gets sort of stereotypical typical and one note but again we're introducing these as a concept and you know people are used to Klingons as the warrior race and humans as the multifaceted we can do anything race no I think humans are nothing to write home about yeah that's true you're becoming more human Becca because that's when data drops his classic joke human slang you know, that's a phrase I actually say, and people give me the same look they give Data when I say it. <laughs> As well they should. It's because you're a robot, Jake. We knew it. <laughs> well, uh, Riker and his crew and uh, Letek and his crew, they both go down to the planet's surface, which turns out to be like what? It feels like Superman's home planet, like Krypton, in terms of how it's dying and stuff like that. There's like crystals everywhere and mist. This is an example of what looks like classic Star Trek's indoor sets, which I feel like they stopped doing later on, like going around Burbank and start filming in the parks and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is definitely feels like a set. There's a pretty cool sequence where Riker goes on a cliff and looks out over this plain of mountains. It's pretty good green screen for what it was. But again, we're watching Remastered, so it's hard to tell. Ooh, that's generous. <laughs> this is a Wiccan witch's wet dream. Yeah. <laughs> so many crystals to power under all this lightning and moon. It was very much showing off like the current techniques in both practical and CGI effects. You have the introduction of like LED style lights where it was easy to change the colors without a gel. So you could make the crystals do these things and whatever they couldn't do, you could fix with like the equivalent of a Photoshop filter of the time. And then the scene with Riker standing in front of the green screen is like the equivalent of someone discovering particle generators in a 3D program for the first time. And you're like, oh, this looks like mountains, kind of. Oh, and this kind of looks like clouds or lightning. Um, yeah, we could put them in like, this looks alien, right? And like, <laughs> now everybody has seen that because it's the first thing that you make in a 3D program. But at the time, it was like, look what we can do. Yeah. Well, I've never used a 3D program, so it was pretty impressive to me. <laughs> then we see the Ferengi start bouncing around like little squirrels. Yeah, they're very um, monkeys from Wizard of Oz Ooh. in terms of like their movement. Yes. And their pool noodle weapons were really impressive. Uh, the remastered effects of them I thought were really solid. Uh, Riker gives a very Captain Kirk-like, right before the commercial break when he passes out like i the whole the whole tense muscles and looking up thing as he like kind of passes out very much threw me back to the original series there's a technique um and i don't know where i had heard this but it's called the soap take where you know that you're going to be cutting to commercials so you hold a pose or a phrase or whatever longer uh until they cut away and an old soap take technique especially if you're doing it for a combat cliffhanger is to just scream for a while until it fades so you get this <laughs> sort of like ah 
and then whoever didn't get the note to fade away just lets the clip go. You know, that's an interesting <laughs> facet of like old television that will probably start fading away the more streaming happens because mm-hmm. the first act break was so forced. I think it was when Picard said, all right, what are your terms? And then it's like, that's the dramatic pause we need to go to commercial break for. It was just like, so what's what's going on with you guys? <laughs> but they really made a moment of it, you know? Yeah. So uh, Riker gives a scream, and uh, he's out, and then we wake up, and really, the Frankie haven't taken much advantage of that position, because eventually Riker just wakes up, everybody wakes up, and there's a great fight scene. Compared to the fact. Jungle Gym uh, mitten fight. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's very true. The thunder uh, incapacitates the Ferengi briefly. Because those big ears, so smart. Yeah. Uh, but here's the thing is that, to your point about them only being one note of greed, 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 they had struck the first blow and then they were like, hey, uh, let, let's gaslight them and tell everybody that they shot us first. And who's going to believe them? Except for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because this was such a foreign concept at the time that we're so familiar with now of gaslighting or passing the blame. (laughs) Oh, you mean uh, our official government policy? (laughs) At the time, this was like a business negotiation technique type of thing, or at least it was supposed to appear that way. What did you guys think of Riker's crouch when he was like clearly getting ready to attack, but also trying to play it off like he's just talking to him. Uh, he's just trying to do the best he could. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and he's also trying to audition for the cover of GQ. <laughs> There's a pretty solid fight scene where Worf uh, flips a couple of them. Data pushes one of them straight up in the air. And then I remember Riker saying something about, I got one. And then Data's like, no, you don't. And then Riker gets punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> And Data has this great reaction take of like, ooh, back to fighting. I think this is a significant moment that Worf is becoming one of the leads in the cast because he was beamed down to the planet and because we're seeing his strength. I mean, he's just a dope-ass strong dude, so of course he can take some of these Ferengi. It's funny because I think the... The actual line comes later in the episode when they're back on the ship, but he's very much, and you can relate to this, of an RPG character that's like waiting for their turn to be the cool one because he says like, for battle, come to me. No, what's happening? I'm the fighter. What? Why, I, I should be fighting. That's my role. I'm the bard. I sing a song. <laughs> yeah, he's the dragonborn barbarian that's just waiting for the fight to happen and <laughs> like all social interactions. He's just like, can we fight this out? I so relate. And then someone else takes first initiative and they lose their (laughs) shit and flip the table. Look, this just feels like me in real life. Uh, There's some real dire things happening up on the Enterprise, though, because as they're losing power, everybody is freezing to death, which for as infrequently as they go back to there, it's a very dark part of the storyline. In fact, Beverly Crusher has to admit that her son is in his quarters and Picard's like, you didn't give him a sedative or something like that. And she's like, I want to, or something. And he says, well, he has the right to face death awake. It's like, holy God, he's like 15. It got real heavy. And I actually, I'm impressed by that. That's kind of the direction I want the show to go in because that was very real. And I wouldn't have been surprised if they hadn't included those two or three scenes, but I'm glad they did because it really gave weight to the situation that they have zero power on a ship that is sustaining life. Yeah. 
Agreed. Yeah, I think it does a good job of setting the stakes, but also reminding us that there are like full families aboard this ship. And so that when things go wrong, things can really, really go wrong for a lot of people. And so this does a good job of sort of reminding us of that, even though I do think it goes a little too dark. It's very much like from the room where she's like, the test results are in and it turns out I have breast cancer. It's like, oh, oh, okay, wait. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I wrote down Dr. Crush her spirit. Jeez, heavy. You won't have to worry much past negative 70 it was her first line of the episode yeah that's true i also wanted to mention that in this uh when they beam down or and they're or whenever they're like incapacitated uh they show the mechanics of the communicator that they wear that it's easily taken off this is to show that it's not a pin even though it most definitely was a pin on the costume but that way uh the communicator can now uh come off or easily skitter uh, out of a jail cell that you're suddenly beamed into or be taken by an enemy so this is really showing that limitation. Ooh, we got plot material. The Ferengi mentions something about the gold having impractical value and then Riker says no it's like it is practical I can't remember the wording it is gold is there something behind the faux science behind that that gold is actually important for those something about uh, that later on they justify that it's a good transmitter or something so mm. it's some mumbo jumbo or something okay. like that chemical right. element AU AU give me back my transmitter <laughs> wow that was really smooth breaking the periodic table <laughs> AG I silver wish I could do that I don't know anyway uh, <laughs> no I'll take it. I'll take it. But uh, and then to say that it's in a society where gold might not have the same meaning because there's no currency. Later on, we find out that gold plated latinum is a thing for uh, Ferengi. Right, right. So strike two for feminism happens next. Yeah. Lieutenant Yar shows up and the Ferengi says, you work with your females and force them to wear clothing? For some of this, you could either view it as like strike two or they were really trying to hammer this home because DC Fontana being a female, it was on, or a woman rather, it was on this the writing staff and wanted to make sure that these sort of messages were getting through, I believe, on, on the show um, to show how ridiculous it is to not have women as part of the workforce, especially if they're just as qualified as the men. But later on, they make that a part of Ferengi culture, which they sort of allude to, where Ferengi females do not wear clothing. And later on, when females do start wearing clothing, it's an empowering thing. They choose to, and they run for government, and, and it becomes a thing. I did think it was actually a kind of funny way of presenting it, because they say it they say it not just that they have to wear clothing, it's like, you force them to wear clothing? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, it's a shameful thing. Yeah. It's a fine line. You know, satire in general is a fine line between enforcing the thing you're trying to make fun of and having people interpret it that way Mm -hmm. and the opposite of actually pointing to the ridicule aspect of it and so uh, it it definitely does provide humor of oh wow they must be very backward in this way uh, of not moving towards equality but at the same time it's setting up for when they make Ferengi a bigger part of the show that they're always going to just inherently discriminate against all their female characters which it's like if we're in this utopia let's be in it well that's the thing is they're not a part of the utopia right so the Mm -hmm. federation has set up these standards but even today there's still bullshit like that happening to women and it's nice that the federation well at least (laughs) in my perception it's nice that the federation was like this is how we live our lives and we're going to show other cultures that this is the way we do it and you can be surprised by it but we're not going to change our ways for you well if only the reverse worked if you could tell my husband because he stood at his sanding desk naked for at least six hours while working today he was sarcastic the entire time. He was so sarcastic. 
Good thing he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> so uh, it turns out phasers don't work here. In fact, the energy crystals are of the planet are slurping up all the energy, including the energy of the ships, they're realizing. So now we discover, oh, that's what the problem is. And uh, a being appears. Just turn off the crystals. <laughs> a being named Portal? Uh, I'm unclear if this is actually like a actual guardian that lives here at like a life force or if it is just like a projection or a hologram of a recording of something. I never really quite got that. Oh, he's there and he shows up and he says, show me what you got. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was who meets this challenge. But show me what you got is essentially what he said. He said, catch me outside. How about that? And show me what you got is largely from this. I think it's like that idea. I think that the Rick and Morty episode where there is an inter galactic sort of American Idol where each planet gets blown up if they don't win was definitely hearkening back to this image of the floating blue head demanding a champion. It's interesting because it's not just this, but this concept itself is so original series. Like, there are a few, like, floating heads, Wizard of Oz recordings or holograms or whatever you want to call them that were, like, relics of a, a forgotten age or relics that are coming back from the future or whatever it is. Even in calling it the portal, um... It's very reminiscent of like a couple of episodes of original series. It's kind of Asimov like in terms of scale too, because he talks to his data kind of goes over all of the uh, kingdoms or uh, dynasties that went before them and how confused it is about the things it can't know because it was recorded so long ago. And then apparently this guy, his name wasn't Portal. He was in a portal for a hundred thousand years and the Takan Empire had been blown up in some starburst supernova situation. Right. And then this guy was like, Nuh-uh, that's not what year it is. Pow. Yeah, so they started calling him Portal because that's just what they used as the name when they were moving forward with the conversation. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, it's it's that same sort of concept of, like, at first you think that this thing is a recording, like a, a computer that is stuck in its time period, and then you realize that maybe it's a, a larger being, much like the Q, who are coming in to judge humanity. Uh, this sort of uh, recognizes another superior race, quote unquote, uh, in the humans rather than the Ferengi. Well, speaking of superior races, we actually get into a talk of the Prime Directive and how Starfleet has allowed civilizations to fall. So we're like in the fourth episode of the first season. We're talking about some of these heavy issues of the Prime Directive that Starfleet has to constantly deal with. Uh, we don't have to get uh, really deep into it on this episode right now, but this is something I really feel we're going to keep revisiting of like, what is the right answer with the Prime Directive in terms of letting innocent lives uh, follow their course, even if it's their own destruction? Welcome. Don't touch it. <laughs> right? Well, right. You don't want don't, you don't touch it, but then you see a lot of people that you might potentially be watching or caring for die. It's kind of the anthropological question that we actually have in modern day life of like these tribes that are out there that are both fine in isolation and others that are not. And we see injustice in those civilizations. So what do we do about it? And then I think that's introducing again a core concept that they have to return to as writers because again, we're living in this utopia where nothing is wrong on the ship. Everything is an outside influence of making things go wrong, but they really have to hammer in, no, Starfleet has its own problems and humanity has its own history, and I guess that's where they think the jumping off point is to tell an interesting story. Well, it turns out the answer is Sun Tzu. 
Just give him a good Sun Tzu quote, and that'll pretty much placate the ancient alien guardian. I think there was some sort of like Sun Tzu mania happening at that time, too, because I remember that being a prominent part of like the zeitgeist. Well, they definitely reference it earlier in the episode when Riker quotes him, and then Picard says something about, well, I'm glad they're still teaching Sun Tzu in the academy. <laughs> and Riker had his first moment of really showing the Prime Directive for himself. I remember thinking like, oh, he finally is sort of standing up for something, because he always so far has been providing a counterpoint of like, I don't know, I think we should shoot him, right boss? Eh, eh. <laughs> and, and this time, it was interesting that he didn't even flinch when the Ferengi start accusing humanity of all these terrible mm-hmm. things and well, choose us, we're the best because humans suck, huh? And Riker's like, yeah, that's true. No, we totally suck. We suck, yeah. Well, we never even got into all the bullshit the Ferengi do. Like, <laughs> they're probably not the best. They <laughs> are hilarious in these scenes. These actors are just going ham oh chewing the scenery literally <laughs> they're eating it up there's nothing left of that scenery it's hilarious i love the handwork that they have to do along with all the shoulder stuff like the camera gives them the option to do full body stuff and they have to take it <laughs> well again you're trying to stand out is establishing this weird alien race and that's a way that as an actor that you can make something weird is to change its sort of body uh how it holds themselves can you remind me what does our sweet baby boy portal ask of Riker that is really the tipping point where he says, okay, I don't have to kill anybody anymore. We're just gonna chat. What's up, bro? What's the riddle that he asked him? Yeah. You know, it's like the Sphinx and he's like, um, uh, two legs and then three legs and then I don't know. Well, Portal does that weird move where he actually attacks him but doesn't hit him. Oh, no flinch. And he's like, oh, well, you have composure, which, I mean, if I was Riker, I would freak the fuck out. (laughs) Then Riker says something epic, which is... Fear is the true enemy, the only enemy. Oh, snap. You and JFK, baby. (laughs) If Portal had said, ah, John F. Kennedy, okay, you do have respect. (laughs) (laughs) You would have to say it like Jean-Luc Picard is John F. Kennedy. (laughs) Really nailed it. Yeah, it just seems like this little old wizard man was waiting for somebody to answer his riddle correctly all these years and... Now he's satisfied and we can walk off into the sunset. Well, his riddle appears to be just like, give me a solid quote. And then he does. And so he's like, okay, I'll release your ship. That was a good one. You can sort of uh, have it as an allegory for being on the other end of the prime directive. If we think of these, the civilization that built the, the portal as being more advanced than humanity, uh, they would want something that could test species that were coming through. Uh, our version of that is whether a species is warp capable or, um, you know, whether they're space bound or still planet bound. So this is, the, I think, their way of establishing that of of someone else has something like the prime directive where they're trying to enlighten species that are at a certain level and challenge and sort of dismiss uh, species that might not be there yet. An even primer directive. An even primer directive. I think we should do each season uh, a mini episode just on the prime directive as it relates to that season and what we saw and then our opinions on the prime directive whether it's good or bad and then revisit every season what's happened since and like kind of discuss like what do we think about this objective and is it working and we can all get prime rib steaks and we can make them in our respective houses and we can have a steak dinner as we discuss the prime directive with prime rib that sounds socially distanced awesome (laughs) i have a question though what was the point of this episode because i liked it but i didn't get it really 
for me, it was them really saying we are above other species as humanity. Like this version of humanity is not current day you humans watching this in the late 80s. We are uh, an elevated version of humanity. And for me, it didn't quite get there. I feel like there, this is the only instance where they present that. There's so many times where I'm like, okay, come on, you're really trying to prove a point here about what humanity is now, that it really isn't in everything we're seeing. I don't think it's separating itself quite enough to make us feel like it's an advanced version of mm -hmm. us. I agree totally. And I, I think there was an attempt, like you had said, but it didn't quite hit what they were trying to do. I also think that they were showing a little bit that Riker is listening and learning, and the crew in general is listening and learning from Picard. We saw how Picard was dealing with an alien race in the past and sort of changing tactics to deal with whoever they were. And when he was being presented by Q and humanity was being judged, now we know the protocol of, okay, when humanity is judged, you present it without argument and you accept the punishment. Uh, and so this was another example of that and that the, the crew is learning and adapting. Also establishing the stakes, like you had mentioned, of if they say life support is down or that power is draining that is a big deal and you should know why that's a big deal as opposed to just more techno babble i mean everybody was passed the hell out when the ship got back like everybody was almost dead like i think everybody got about two percent brain damage in there in terms of like lack of oxygen right they all had to make trips through the sick bay just to get that <laughs> little bit of tissue back <laughs> and production note the one thing i wish is that at the end when they do a call back to the chinese finger trap and how they sent a bunch to the Ferengi that they'd actually taken the time when they had them in hair and makeup to get that shot of Ferengi opening a box. <laughs> Not only that, to fix Data's fingers so that when he would pull it off that it didn't have the makeup rubbing off. That was the first time. Oh, did it? I didn't notice <laughs> oh, that. Oh, snap. I just loved Riker's deadpan face while he's reporting in but also playing with the finger trap. If you guys go watch that moment again, it's pretty hilarious how serious Frakes looks while holding it. My personal theory is that someone brought a finger toy on set or something like that during like the writers meeting or even when they were filming and they were like, perfect, That's this is strange and alien. I've never seen one of these before. When I was writing down my notes about the Chinese finger trap, I was like, is this is this what it's actually called or is this some weird derogatory term that I've just kept around in my life? So I looked up the finger trap on Wikipedia. It is actually called Chinese finger trap or Chinese finger puzzle. Um, but originally they were known as there was a single ended version uh, known as a girlfriend trap, which has been available since at least okay. 1870 when it was recorded as a Maschenfanger or girl catcher. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, that is what we do. We grab on with our mighty vaginas and we hold for dear life. Dear God, no! So thanks for this episode, The Last Outpost, which is also my nickname for my vagina. <laughs> Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Yeah, and uh, ignore the explicit rating that this episode now has. <laughs> and uh, speaking of that, where no one has gone before is our next episode. Oh, uh, also my nickname for my vagina. <laughs> Uh, just a little bit of a preview when an experimental engine modification throws the Enterprise to the edge of the known universe. The crew must rely on a mysterious alien to guide the ship home. Mm. Guys, I'm so excited to watch that. In the meantime, if you liked this podcast, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Please rate us on iTunes because that's definitely a way to get it out there.
Additionally, if you are so inclined to talk more about this, we have a Discord. The link is in our description below, along with a link to our Twitter, our Instagram. Please subscribe, like us, share stuff with us. We love talking about Star Trek, and we love you. Please like us. <laughs> Please. Uh, Xander, Becca, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Okay, bye. See you next week. Engage. Engage. Fuck. That was good. <laughs> that was like only a second off. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs>